Hi, this is Trevor Blake, New York Times bestselling author of Three Simple Steps and Secrets to a Successful Startup, and you are listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Trevor Blake. Trevor Blake is a perpetual student of life. Trevor was the founder and CEO of QOL QOL Media, LLC, which he started with just a few hundred dollars and sold in 2010 for more than $100 million. He's since sold two more companies, over $300 million, and is currently work on his fourth, fifth, and sixth. He's never hired a single employee or worked more than five hours a day. He's worked in the US, the UK, Europe with companies such as 3M, Lipitech, and Biogen, and has won many industry awards. Trevor's passion is physics and how we can use an understanding of the relationship between energy and matter to achieve success in any aspect of business or life. Trevor lives in greater Seattle and is here to talk about his book, Three Simple Steps, A Map to Success in Business and Life. Welcome, Trevor. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate the introduction. That's great to have you here. Tell me, when you were growing up, Trevor, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? My mother. No hesitation on that. She was. She still is, even through the spirit world, I believe that she is the greatest influence on my life because I observed how she handled very difficult circumstances. And I learned life is going to be a mixture of good days and not so good days. And so I've learned to handle both with the same grace. So she was given six months to live when I was just a little kid. I was six or seven years old. And in those days, we're talking the 60s, when you were told you had six months to live, you did what the doctor said. You, you died six months later. And she, I was, because we didn't, you know, we were poor and so we didn't have a vehicle or anything. So when she went to the hospital, the kids had to go with her. So my sister, brother and I were all very close in age. My dad and my mom and dad were in the room and we were in the car. The walls were very thin in the hospital and I heard the doctor pronounce that to her and I heard there was a pause and I thought she must be crying. We were crying in the corridor and I and then I heard her, I could tell she leant forward because her voice changed and so she leant forward and she said to this doctor, young man, I'll make that decision, not you. And she absolutely meant it and she lived until I was 21 and, and I was the last to leave home and be safe and so she, I, I caught her once talking to God through a window in the kitchen and she said, I'll decide and I'm not leaving until my kids are all grown up and safe. And she lived an incredible powerful life helping helping all the, all kinds of other people taking in all waifs and strays both animal and human all through my my childhood without and I never heard her complain once grimace and pain now and again but she never once complained about the burden that she had to had to carry there it was incredible so I saw what indefatigable was like and so in my life when I face what I consider to be a challenge like a business challenge or whatever all I have to do is remember how my mum was and then I think I say to myself well don't be stupid this is nothing in comparison and so I say yeah thanks for the question and I love I love to to recognize her and thank her for that it's amazing the gifts that we receive that if we don't reflect upon them, we really don't appreciate how much the people in our lives sacrificed or how valuable their example was to us. Yeah. And my, my father was also an example to me, but in a different way, because I think he lost the plot, if that's the right way, a little bit because he thought his wife was going to die and he'd be left with three kids. And so he gave up on life. So my so we lived on welfare and we didn't, uh, I didn't, you know, I saw him get a couple of part-time jobs once, but they didn't last. And he was unemployed and unemployable, although he wasn't a bad man or anything like that. But I lost 
lost respect for him. And when I was probably between the age of, say, 10 and 15, because he wasn't helping my mother. And then I, then I grew up a little bit and realized that he, he doesn't know how. His generation well, I weren't taught to cook or make a cup of tea or any of these things. He's the man in the house. So I started to change that. And so I did all the cooking and my brother and sister and I, we all baked together and all that kind of stuff. And so I observed how my father reacted to the situation. And that helped me just as much as observing my mother, even though at the time I might have been a little angry about it. And then in my life, I, my wife and I, we had a 40-year marriage. She unfortunately passed away only in December last year. But she was ill for, for all of that time. And because I'd observed what my dad didn't do, I think that made me a very good caregiver for, for the thing. So I think you can learn from both circumstances. Sorry to hear of your wife's passing. It, it makes a difference that she had you and you had that extra awareness that your father didn't and were able to do a, a different kind of job in your relationship. Yeah. And I would not have known how to do that if, I, if my father hadn't taught me through his lack of ability to get his sort of brain around all of those things. We all play different roles and sometimes it's not a very pleasant role. You have to play the villain and you don't always get to play the hero. Sometimes it's through our example, sometimes through it's our counterexample that we give the most wisdom to people who are observing. Now, growing up, Trevor, you encountered bullying and you write about being dragged to the back of a bus and having older kids strip off your shirt and write graffiti on your chest, back and arms because other, among other things, your family was poor and you're an English family living in Wales at a time when foreigners were not welcome. Now, I, I remember getting beat up after school, after moving to a, a new Catholic school in my uniform and feeling anxious that my parents would be upset to having to buy another white shirt, black pants and plaid tie. When you look back on that incident, how did you view the way that you responded to it and the decisions you made about yourself and others? How did that affect your mentality as a little boy? At uh, first, I think there was some sort of shame involved. I felt like it must be my fault. And because of my mother's situation and our difficult circumstances, you know, when I say difficult, I was aware that we lived in not the best circumstances materially, but I actually was having a fantastic time because I was living in like Chronicles of Narnia in the countryside. So I was actually very happy. And so for this, sort of, this made the sort of bullying twice as hard because, you know, it wasn't, why would they do that to me? That kind of thing. So I thought I must be doing something wrong. It must be me. That's the first thought process. And I wanted to protect my parents from it. So I never told anybody. So I'd sneak into the bathroom. We just had one naked bulb over the sink. And, and it was almost like permanent marker. It was there for weeks. And the, the writing was there for weeks. And thank goodness for long sleeve shirts, right? Yeah, yeah. And I knew I would happen to a lot of kids. It wasn't just me. So I knew that, but it really did affect me and it affected my schoolwork and my opinion of myself. But the bullying itself is what actually changed my life because it got worse from there. That was just the start of it. And then it became the equivalent of cricket bats, like baseball bats would be here. And someone even came after me with a shotgun once. And I had a lot of fights and lost most of them. And then I started to just keep out of their way. And I did that by hiding in the school library, in the public library in the town. And it was an old converted prison. And at the back of the library was this huge metal door. And behind there was the reference section where nobody ever went. And I used to be able to prize that door open when no one was looking and sneak into the reference library. And I'd hide there until I knew my bullies weren't going to come in there. And I'd give myself a couple of hours until it all passed. And that's what changed my life because I, I would hide behind the bookshelves and I suddenly started thinking, well, I'm lying here. I may as well read a book. And I just happened to be by the biography section and I started reading biographies. And there were all kinds. There, were, there was all kinds and all times. And they were adventurers and they were freed slaves and there were musicians and there were business people. And that's where I noticed that they all had some commonalities. Most of them had been brought through worse possible circumstances than I could possibly imagine. And that made me feel a whole lot better. If all I have to handle is a little bit of bullying compared to what they've gone through, it's not so bad after all. That helped mentally a lot. But then I saw that they exuded these sort of patterns of behavior and thinking and 
their successful lives made such an impact, I decided just to adopt that in my life. Who were a few of the people who you recall? And what were the three things that you observed among the group that you think of now? Maybe three or four people. I think the most inspiring, the one that caught my, my inspiration the, mo the first, that I really couldn't put the book down and I read it, I've read it probably 10 times since, was Madam C.J. Walker, who I'd never heard of and, until I read this book. And a lot of people, even in America, don't know who Madam C.J. Walker is. She was born to slaves. She was abused at 14. She was pregnant and then had been abandoned. She she was so it was she, slavery was abolished, but the rules around the abolition of slavery were worse even than slavery itself. She wasn't allowed to own a, a knife and fork. She wasn't allowed to walk in public with a man. She wasn't allowed to work. And if there was any work, it could only be agriculture. It was horrendous when you think about it. And and she was so stressed and so malnourished with everything that had happened to her that her hair fell out. And she used all the hair tonics that were locally available. And then she started to make her own hair tonic, and one of them worked. And so she started to go door to door selling hair tonic. That's how she started. And you fast forward through this amazing positive. She was she was never negative. She she was never against anything. She was for solutions all the time. That's the real key to be for something instead of against something. And suddenly she becomes America's first female millionaire. Isn't that ins insanely brilliant? I mean, to, to be, to go from born to slaves to be the first female millionaire, which was massive, you know, it's like a billionaire today. And, and then she used that position of power and wealth to start to influence politically the treatment of the life that she'd come from, where lynching was still happening on a daily basis. So she was very instrumental in anti-lynching laws and things like that. So people like that talk about adversity. First, female in business, a black female in business, bullied black female in business, freed slave, bullied black female in business, can overcome all of those things and make a huge difference to the, to the way the world works. That inspired me so tremendously. And I know it doesn't. And I, I keep going back to them and I keep recommending to people, if you want to read anything, read biographies because they'll just show you a path forward. And, and you asked about the three things. So basically, there was this control of mentality. So it didn't matter what people called her or what people said to her. She had a way of letting it bounce off her. I love that mentality control. So I learned over the years certain tools and techniques that could help with that. And then she also had her own form. She used to sit in a tree and people didn't look up. You don't most people don't look up when they're walking. They look down. And so people didn't know she was sitting in a tree. And that's where she meditated. But she didn't call it meditation. She called it her personal conversation with, her, with, with herself. And, and so I realized, and everyone did some form of meditation technique. Even Ford used to sit in an old rocking chair in the old farmhouse that was that was derelict and all this kind of thing. So I started to meditate at a young age. I just thought, well, if it works for them, it'll work for me. And I did nothing more than sit quietly in a corner for 20 minutes a day. And that completely changed my life. And then the other thing was they had this innate ability to set targets. And this is proven by all the tests on what makes people successful. There's really two things. One is self-confidence and the other is an innate ability to set big targets. And so I wasn't really thinking big when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. And so I decided to think really big, bigger than anyone dare at that age for where I was and who I was. And everyone laughed at me and everyone said I was crazy and I pulled it off. And after doing that, I realized that those three things, I can just use them over and over, which is what I've done. I just want to make sure I have them. The, one is the define your own mentality, not let other things affect you. What was the second? Because the third one is to set your own limits. So intent, I call it intention setting the third one. So the second one is it's a it's a double thing. So what? So you have to get your own individualism back and you have to get back to, the, to, to what it felt like as a child when you were daydreaming. This is how we start to use our imagination of it. So the paths to that for me are some form of meditation technique where you allow your 100 billion neurons to not be interrupted by a device or chatter or complaining or gossiping or TV or, or shoot them up movies or anything. And you allow your 100 billion neurons to go out to play for 20 minutes by themselves. That's what I. That's how I think of it. Just let them do what they want to do. Just sit there. Your neurons and they'll form all these new neural pathways and that are uninterrupted by our sort of modern life. And when those
those neural pathways are formed, then you need to plug them in. And so you, so I'm very much, because I, I personally got the benefit of immersion in nature when I was a little kid. Because I was born in Liverpool, grew up in Liverpool. It was inner city, dusty, dirty existence. And then we were evicted and we escaped to the country. And suddenly I was in Chronicles of Narnia, which was the most amazing thing that could ever happen to me. And I, I started to understand the benefit of immersion in nature. I had some amazing experiences. And so realized that my neurons, my neural pathways can actually connect with all of this nature's pathways. And it can, I can suddenly become wiser than I have a right to be. And I can get solutions and brilliant ideas and all this type of thing. So that's the important thing. So mentality control so that someone can't knock your idea off. You say, I've got this great idea. And the first person you tell says, that's a dumb idea. And that just brings you down. So mentality control and then meditation, let it ferment if you like, then plug it into nature and then set the massive target. And that's basically the full program. You, you talk about the strong mentality and you break it down. You're a huge fan of threes. So I think of it as, as triangular thinking. You want to always have three very strong, very sturdy points to anchor an idea, story, solution in. And you talk about a mentality being the relationship between a situation, a thought, and the reaction. Talk about how you use that in some practical situation where you can apply that formula day to day. Yeah, very. you could think of a thousand exa examples. I think the most obvious one that would affect all of your listeners the most is debt because almost everybody I meet is in some kind of debt. And believe me, if I have any advice to offer anybody, it's get debt free. It's the best feeling in the world. And, and it truly is freeing, uh, getting debt free. So what typically happens is, I say I'm not a fan of positive thinking because our thoughts form in 500 milliseconds. You don't have time to get ahead of the bad thought, okay? So you see something you don't like, you have a negative thought, that's perfectly normal and natural, and you shouldn't fight that because let's say it was a grizzly bear running towards you. You should have a negative thought to get out of the way. If you're gonna have a positive thought saying, oh, what a lovely bear, you're dead, okay? So you need to gonna be sensible about it. So I'm not a fan of positive thinking. But what I am a fan of is, is positive reaction. So it's okay to have the negative thought. Don't beat yourself up about it, but then realize that it's doing you some harm and then react differently to it. So debt is a great example. In, in days before online banking and, and statements and stuff like that, we used to get our uh, credit card bills in the mail. And there's no worse sinking feeling than when you open that. It's terrifying as you're opening the envelope, your hands are shaking and, and you look at it and you think, oh my God, what a mess. How did I get into this and how am I going to get out? And it's a horrible feeling. And I know, I know probably everyone listening has that feeling or has had that feeling. And so that's, so you've got all these negative thoughts and the negative thoughts are debt. And the problem with thoughts is they're also energy. Everything in life is energy. And they've taken on the energy of that 500 millisecond neurochemical reaction. They've gone out into the universe. The law of energy says, one of the main laws says that energy can neither be created nor destroyed, only converted to another form. That thought is going to come back in a material equivalent of itself. So if you think debt, you're going to get more debt. If you say to yourself, I hate debt, you're going to get more of what you hate. So you have to change your reaction. And so what I used to do was, and I got this from all of those biographies because they did the same thing. I imagined being debt free. And so I would imagine a little movie in my head and I would imagine getting that statement and it had balance 0.00 on it. How did that feel? And I pretended how that would feel. And then I imagined going up to the local liquor store and buying a bottle of champagne with cash and bringing it home and, also, and us all celebrating. And all kinds of miracles started to show up in my life. People just started giving me money. Then people would say, oh, I didn't have time to get your birthday present this year. Here's 20 quid and 20 pounds. Money came in from all over the place. I got tax refunds I didn't know I was entitled to and things like that. Before long, I was out of debt. And I actually did it. I went up to the liquor store, paid cash, bought a really expensive bottle of wine, and we all celebrated. And I learned my lesson. I had a very clear lesson that it's not what we think that's important. It's how we react to what we think. So when we get a negative thought that we we know that's not a good thought, it could be about relationships, it could be about business, about anything. Then you stop yourself and you go, hang on, and you play a little movie of the opposite of what you want. So of what you've of what you've said. So instead of thinking a bad thing happening, you start to imagine it turning out really well. I do this in business all the time. Before I go into a boardroom, I will imagine everybody smiling, laughing, clapping 
shopping, patting me on the back, signing on the dotted line. I'd play a little, a very quick mini mind movie before I open the door. And things go so much better than if I go knocking on the door, intimidated and thinking, oh God, I hope this doesn't go wrong. Because for sure it will go wrong. See, what you're talking about is so critical that we have a choice as to how we respond and a choice as to how we can prepare and anticipate something happening in our lives. And when you couple it with anticipating success and on feeling the emotion that you ent- that you wish to feel based upon a positive outcome for everyone involved, that helps create the confidence and the mindset to make those decisions. The confidence is really important. It's so essential to, to any kind of success, even in relationships and things like that. It's so important to, to get that confidence. And you get it by making these changes and then seeing the effects. You think, wow, I did that. And you just keep doing it and doing it. And before long, you're not talking about trying to become debt-free. You're talking about building and selling a company for $100 million. Now, one of the most charismatic and well-known business figures you write about in your book with great admiration, Steve Jobs had a strong mentality and self-reliance. He really did think for himself and Establish his own stand. And he talked about his independence streak as early as deciding not to go to college or return back to read college. Talk about how what you learned by studying Steve Jobs' life through his biographies and how that how we can adopt that and use it in our own lives and businesses. What I really like about Steve Jobs, and actually his wife talked about this, is that she also says in a number of interviews, the biggest thing I learned from Steve is that life isn't fixed. And if we have the ability to drill our vision and our understanding of life, right down to the very microscopic level, we'll find that everything in life is made of the same basic stuff, including us. And it's just groupings of atoms bumping into one another. And if we know that, then we can change the, what we think is fixed and move them around. And so she's, she actually uses the line, I can move it and I can change it. And that was his approach to his sort of creative side of life. That it does, And that's what I found when I was a kid. I realized that it's not fixed. I don't have to turn out like my dad. I don't have to be, I don't have to choose between. The, so the big dream I had was I wanted to join the military academy. No one from my type of background and no days, it was very elitist, could join the, the Royal Navy uh, Academy. It was the other end of the country and, and people just told me to forget it, don't be stupid. That's the that's the purview of princes and, and kings and the future political leaders. And so they said to me, you've really got two choices. You can work on the farm, which is fine because I'd worked on a farm part-time and loved it amongst the best time of my life, but that's not what I wanted for my life. Or you can take a job as an assistant manager in a chicken packing factory and that was what was offered to me. And um, I, I stuck it out, stuck it out. I went down to the South Coast and did all the tests and passed and somehow managed to get through. And I ended up in the academy. And that is no different to Steve Jobs inventing the iPad. I can tell you that. From where I was to get to there, my first day at the academy, I I got out of the back of a military truck that picked me up from the train station. And there I was just stood in parade ground, the massive, beautiful, opulent buildings and surroundings of Dartmouth, Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth. And then the Rolls Royce pulled into the the parade square and Prince Andrew got out of the back and he joined on the same day. We joined at the same minute on the same day. We joined the military together. And you couldn't have got a more poignant scene. Unfortunately, no one had cameras in those days, so it wasn't captured. But here you've got this scruffy kid from nowhere, no hoper, if you like, joining on the same day as this very privileged kid who was the same age, very privileged kid coming from a place I could only possibly imagine. And he looked more terrified, nervous than I was. And uh, that was quite a surprise to me. So it's countless stories like that. Many managers and business founders are struggling today to imagine a better future. They're stuck in what you describe in the book as quicksand, unable to imagine or take time to get out from 
the thoughts they keep thinking. What do you advise leaders who are looking to create a better business, better opportunities for their teams to do as a concrete practice to get themselves out of the quicksand thinking? It's interesting you say that, Bill, because I, I actually experienced the opposite with all the entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs I hang out with. I personally believe this, this is an unprecedented time of opportunity. There's never been a better time to reinvent yourself and achieve rapid financial independence. The old way of doing things used to be build locally, then go regionally. And if you were good enough, you could get maybe nationally and then hopefully globally. And that could take 150 years. We work in the world now where we could come up with a winning idea and go global tomorrow. Okay, all the tools and, and softwares and features are available right on right here, right now in front of me on this little thing. When I was a kid, I, I was so proud someone bought me a, a two transistor radio. I was so proud of the two transistor and it had on the front two, a du dual transistor radio. And, and that's how I heard the world in my in the, the outside world where I lived and everything. The chip in this computer has 64 billion transistors. Okay. So that's how much progress there has been. So th there's never been a better opportunity to come up with ideas and start and, and, and be successful and get rapid financial independence. And all the people I talk to say the same thing. I don't come across that many people who are stuck in the quicksand, devoid of ideas, but devoid of creative and inventive ideas. I meet a lot of people stuck in the quicksand who don't have the self-confidence that they're the one that can execute on the idea they just had. And that's a big difference. And so part of my teaching, if you like, is, okay, what do you do once you have the idea? How do you get out of the quicksand at that point and turn it into something new? But on the entrepreneurial ladder, people are just, they've got so many ideas, they actually don't know what to do with them all. That's absolutely agree with you. There are so many ideas, but as you say, what really matters is executing on them so that it puts products and services into the world to solve problems. You have to own it and commit to it. That's it. So I'm a physicist. And so I, I go back to the fact that everything in life is energy and energy flows. And so if you don't, so I had a great example a couple of weeks ago, somebody called me to said they had a business idea as a friend. And I realized it was the exact same business idea he had a year ago. He'd already told me about it, but he's forgotten he's told me about it. And he's done nothing in the meantime. And, and I said to him, that business idea has flowed past you. And I guarantee someone else has picked it up and is already working on this. And sure enough, you found out that somebody is. And that's the challenge. So you have to, so when ideas flow, you have to be the one that says, this what this is for me. And you dip your hands into that energy flow and you say, okay, I'm taking ownership of this idea. And you can do it in very simple ways. I always recommend to people, if you have a great idea, incorporate the idea. Don't worry about company name. Don't worry about capital. Don't worry about experience. I've never had any of that. I'm totally unqualified for the companies that I've built and sold. You'll figure it out because you're human and you have a brilliant TNT bomb sitting on top of your shoulders. So you can do that, pretty much do anything. And then, so incorporate the idea. It costs about $100. And then this magical thing happens about a week later, you get an envelope in the mail and there on letterhead is Trevor G. Blake, founder and CEO of whatever I've called this company. My first company I called TGB International. Well, it never became a company because when I finally started the, the, this turn TGB International, this idea into a company, I had to change the name to fit the business we were in. So I changed the name to Qual Medical. But so, so if you incorporate an idea, you, you then see that piece of paper and you photocopy it a hundred times and you paste it to the windows and the, the mirrors and put it in your pocket and put it in your wallets and all this kind of thing so that you see it all the time. And one, the more you do that, the more it builds in your mind. And suddenly you're not thinking about an idea. You're actually thinking about what the company structure would be. And you're thinking about who would be the customer and who would be the best vendors. And before you know it, you've got a real company in your head and all you all that's left is execution. And so that's the process. And, and Secrets to a Successful Startup, which is my book that came out last year, that's process, step-by-step -step guide is available to Well, there's a lot of science that undergirds this now. 20 years ago, people were using this and people have used these ideas of being able to focus and have items in their environment remind them of their 
commitments and their goals. And this has been going on for a long time. But recently, in the last 20 years, we've had more and more studies come out. And you cite one in 2007 about Harvard Medical School with piano key fingering exercises, where it reinforced and added to the body of literature that says that mental training has the power to change not just your belief, but the physical structure of the brain. And not only can't the brain distinguish between what's real and imagined and how it internalizes and how you react to it, but it also creates something that in their study, they had people practicing this and they could scan them non-invasively. They didn't have to open up anybody's head, but they were able to scan people and see that it actually stimulated and built like a muscle, the growth of the motor cortex. How can business managers really benefit from this knowledge that what we imagine and focus on becomes something that develops in our abilities as much as something that's real and tangible? So neuroplasticity is a magical tool. And I, I like to use it all the time. And you don't have to you don't have to be a neurologist or a physicist or anything to understand it. It basically comes down to the fact that the brain cannot tell the difference between what is real and what is imagined. And that's all you need to know. And then use that. And how do you use that? Well, you start to use your imagination in a more productive and powerful and passionate way. And I teach a lot in my courses and books and stuff. I teach a lot about how to use imagination in a particular way to set a really big intention and then to bring it into the present by crushing time because time's an illusion. So we have to understand that so I talk about how is time an illusion and then we, we put this amazing imagination over something we want and we bring it into the present. And how we do that is we imagine we're already successful. So there's no point starting out as an entrepreneur and imagining I hope one day or I can and I will, I wish I could be a successful entrepreneur because it will always elude you. So you start day one imagining yourself as a successful entrepreneur that exits in the way that you want to exit or makes the impact that you want to make or whatever it is that, you, that is for you. For me, I, I imagined selling a company for over $100 million because for me, that is a target that I chose that was personal to me for a particular reason that's personal to me. So it probably wouldn't fit suit any, everybody or others. I, I could have chosen a billion. I could have chosen any number, but 100 million was really important to me at that time. I felt that would give me the validation to go on and do the other things that I wanted to do in life. And, and I imagined that before I even had set the company structure up. I had no idea how to do it. I had no idea where to go, where to get money, how to build this thing, or, or I, had no, I had no concept of what I was really getting into. But I imagined that success. So I started to imagine what does it feel like to have done that already? And and that's the beauty of transformation, this transformative process. So it's how we use our imagination so that we're not always imagining things ahead of us. We imagine what does it feel like? What does it taste like? What does it touch? What does it smell like? And that's why that visualization really works because let's say as part of your dreaming, you want to have a supercar. Well, you can't really bring a supercar into your life unless you know what that feels like. So you've got to get into the dealership and you've got to touch it and feel it and smell it. And if you befriend the salesman, he'll let you drive it. And, and it's only when you get comfortable with these things that you have the ability to magically bring them into your life. And business relationships, it works the same in all aspects of life. I've, I coach people in relationships to imagine they're walking on their favorite thing. It could be like walking on a soft sand, sugar sand beach at sunset with someone that inspires them and makes them laugh. Don't put a face to it. Just imagine this uplift. How does that feel? And usually the pe people I'm talking to, they're on their third or fourth really bad relationship. And you have to change, you have to change the behavior, change the pattern of behavior. And so you do it by doing that, imagining it working out perfectly. How does that feel? And uh, I've got wonderful emails from people whose lives have changed. We've gone 180 degrees as a result of just doing that, just using, just being like a child again and using our daydreaming imagination. And the powers within us all to do that because it's so important. People who are in small businesses and are constantly looking at ways to innovate their product and penetrate new markets always need to remember the importance of starting with yourself and that you can reinvent yourself, a word that you and I have talked about quite a bit today, reinventing ourselves in order to become the people who can accomplish the things that we set out to do. How important has that been for you 
you to have the recognition and the validation of how many times you've reinvented yourself to become the person you are today? It was important once. It was imp- so it was important to it. So I, I was never really interested in, in in being a businessman or anything like that when I first started out. I wanted to travel because growing up poor, you don't travel. My parents never went abroad or we never had a holiday or vacation or anything. And, and so the Navy gave me the opportunity to travel and that, that put in me a great desire to travel even more. So when I left the Royal Navy, that's what I, I traveled all over the world in, in a very luxurious, I didn't want to, I didn't want to backpack. I, I wanted to stay in five-star hotels and drive supercars. And so I had an amazing life up until about the age 40 where I did that. Not a massive salary, but I think my late last salary was 330000 a year or something. And but that gives you that's enough money to live and travel and have fun. Okay. And then I decided I wanted to start a business and get into it and I'd gone up into another level. So the, to get to, into the Navy was to prove the doubters wrong. That was very important for me. That set that deep motivation. And then to have the life of travel was to prove my family and friends wrong because they thought I was nuts and it's not possible for someone like me. And so I did, there was a strong motivation to prove people wrong. When I got into business, it was for me. My motivation was, I can't say that. My motivation was two things. So one was to do it and to, have, to make an impact that was really important to me, to save some kids' lives and stuff like that. And the other was to make my wife proud and to make her smile. And so by providing the lifestyle that comes with at that time, getting to the point where you're half billionaire, that seeing my wife smile and, and enjoy the life, she, she, she's been, she was ill her whole life and, and struggled physically and I was a caregiver for her too in the last few years. And to take the pain and suffering of that away, which I wasn't able to do with my mother because I was only a kid and provide a really nice lifestyle for her, that was strong motivation for me. I don't think it matters what your motivation is, whether it's to get an award, whether to be recognized, to prove someone wrong. It doesn't matter. It's very personal to you and it's no one else's business. But I think if you set your life and your intention around something that matches that motivation, then the chances of achieving it are greatly enhanced. And congratulations on each of those different milestones that you set for yourself. Trevor, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yes, love it. Fire away. We started off talking about, in the interview, a person who influenced and inspired you growing up, and that was your mother. When you were a teenager, Trevor, what's a song that you loved? You'll Never Walk Alone. I'm a Liverpool soccer fan, and they have an anthem that they sing, and they've taken it as their own anthem and it reminds everybody that we're living in a time right we've always lived in a time where greed in sport spoils the sport a little bit but the, that this was an anthem him that everybody's together the fans the club the community and, and no one ever has to walk alone so that was i that was always always said it always makes the hair stand up my neck when i hear it and sing it how does it go when you walk through a storm hold your head up high that's as much as you're gonna get you're involved in a lot of things with different businesses you're working on multiple businesses at the same time you've written a couple books do you have a tool or system you use to help you stay on track and productive yes yeah, so it's it's a Available actually on my website, trevorgblake.com. It's a free download, no strings attached, called The Practical Magic of the Five-Hour Workday. The secret to it all is to work less, not more. And the science shows it's really hard to concentrate and focus and be productive for more than two-hour periods. And that the magic happens when our brains are slightly tired and we move into a relaxing moment. Like That's why we have these magic aha moments in the bath or the shower or out in the woods, be walking and stuff like that. And so I've, I learned the hard way to divide my... I learned in the military that dividing the day up into watches, duty periods and stuff like that is done for a very scientific reason is to keep you sharp, keep the brain sharp. And all, all it doesn't matter who's, which military, where it is in the world, they all divide, they all make sure that their, their cannon fodder are sharp. And and so I've, I brought that into my businesses. So I make sure that I, and I'm religious on the schedule, I won't let it run into one another. So I have separate devices for business and work. That's really important so that my business doesn't leak into my private life. And also my private life doesn't distract me when I'm working at the laptop. And and then so I have a two hour productive period, then I'm off for two to three hours. And I, I'll have, I used, I used to have a very long lunch with my wife, take my 
my dogs for a walk, go walking in nature, go walk on a beach or something. And that's where I have those magical aha moments. They always say this, it's always the same thing. Oh God, why didn't I think of that before? I wouldn't have thought of it at all if I'd been crunching at the computer trying to crack this code or something. And then I come back to another two hours. And then in the evening, I usually do an hour of writing and stuff like that because I like to write. And, and that's my work day. And people think that's impossible. And I show you scientifically how it's not just possible, it's necessary. And it's how we used to live before the industrial revolution. Before 1740, and most people are surprised by this, the average worker did less than four hours a day. And they had their priorities. They had family, spirit, lifestyle, work, or pleasure work. And here in America in particular, but I think most of the West now, it's work. And burnout is a real issue as an entrepreneur. So you'll be really careful with that. I know some successful entrepreneurs or successful materially who work 14-hour days, but they're on the third marriage. And what's the point in that? And the, even the dog doesn't know who they are. What's the point living that way? So I've always been one, I've always been for success with balance. And the way to do that is to use the science to show you how to structure your day. And when you do it like that, the important thing is the business structure. So in Secrets to a Successful Startup, I talk very much about the business structure that I've used for all my companies. They're, they're non-employee business models. It's a model of alliances or a hub model. It used to be called the virtual business model. It's an, it's when it was first associated with dot coms and all that kind of stuff, it, it, it had a bit of a wrap. But we live in the perfect time for a model of alliances now. And uh, it frees you up because all of those meetings are gone. All of those human resource programs are gone. You've got all the spare time. And, and when you first start, like when I first started my first company, I'd be sat at my computer waiting for an email or waiting for the phone to ring. And I suddenly realized this is going to kill me. This is no way to live. And so I, I went back to the science and said, okay, I'm going to schedule like this, build the business model so the business runs itself. And the, the proof of the pudding is always in the eating of it. So when I was brave enough to have my first vacation in my first company, I went away to the UK for three weeks. We didn't have cell phones in those days, or at least I didn't. And when I came back, I expected chaos. And when I got back, I realized that the, everyone in the business hadn't even noticed I'd gone. And I realized, oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, this thing's kept running beautifully without me. I like That's that. a great mark of success. Tell me, what's your definition of personal success? You're being successful when? When I'm happy. And what makes you happy these days? Life. I love life. I'm a perpetual student of life. Uh, I still think I'm, I'm, I'm like a Peter Pan. I still think I'm 20. So I've got so many ideas and so many things I want to do. And I always, I, I have, the mantra in all of my companies is the same. Make a positive difference in someone's life. Have fun doing it. Or why else bother? And share in the material and other rewards that come naturally as a result of setting that energy and flow. And that's the mantra I use for, for that's my life's mantra. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. You've shared so many great ideas, Trevor, that will help people who are listening in terms of understanding the importance of both positive examples in your life and counterexamples that we start off with. Many people can relate. I think that a lot of people who are in high tech in particular can relate to finding refuge in a library, myself included. The idea of simplifying things, because there are not a hundred things that we need to do. We just need to find the right three to five things every day and make sure those get done. And how important it is to control our mentality, set our intentions, and then set big targets. We talked about how you got into the Royal Navy and what a difference that made for you, not just in achieving that level of success and being part of that group, but also improving people that said you could never do that and shattering that limit for yourself. We talked about the idea of neuroplasticity and how all of us have that available to us to reinvent ourselves at any point in our lives simply when we choose it. We talked about the importance of owning and committing to ideas because then, like Goethe said, genius has boldness and magic behind it. 
we um, also talked about the illusion of time and being able to imagine that you are succeeding now rather than waiting for signs of success so that you could start to bring them into your life based upon science. So for these reasons and so many more, Trevor, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. That was a pleasure. Trevor, before we say goodbye for now, what's a website we could go to to find out more about what you're doing online? Everything is trevorgblake.com. That's my name, Trevor G for George Blake. We will link to that in the show notes, as well as your social media and links to buy your books. So thank you once again, Trevor Blake, author of Three Simple Steps, A Map to Success in Business and Life. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.